We turn now to our main reading of this afternoon, continuing in our Christmas season um, series, reading from Ruth 2. And we'll be reading the whole chapter this afternoon. Ruth 2, beginning at verse 1. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on, his, on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And she rose to glean. Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also, pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, 
It is good, my daughter, that you should go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Will you pray with me? Gracious God and Father, we give you thanks for preserving your word for your people to read and to be blessed with, to be challenged by, and to be transformed by throughout the ages. We thank you for this short passage, Lord. We thank you for what you will do with it. Because when we have read scripture and when we hear it, we hear you speaking to us. So, Father God, we ask for your blessing upon the reading of the word. Bless our hearts to hear it. Bless the words that I say, Father. Let us be transformed. Let us be made more like you through this word that you have spoken to us today. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray for your blessing upon this sermon. Amen. Please be seated. When I was a little kid, I remember one time a Sunday school teacher or somebody like that asked us kids, asked a bunch of us kids, what our favorite part of the Christmas season was. And I remember presents was the most popular answer by a wide margin. I mean, I don't really know what you would expect if you take a bunch of five to nine-year-olds and then stick them in a room at Christmas time and then ask them what their favorite part of Christmas time was. You're playing with a loaded deck there. And I'm not ashamed to admit, little John said, yeah, presents. I like presents. But I think little John wasn't entirely wrong for saying presents. Selfish, yes, sure, but not far off. He was just thinking about the wrong kind of gift. Christmas really is about a gift that the Lord has given to the world to receive. But it's not like the gifts that we normally receive at Christmas time. It's not a new toy or new clothes or new tools or a new addition to Dad's weird tie collection. No, God gave us a child from the little town of Bethlehem, a little boy who would become a man, a man who would change the world forever with the message that he brought and the work that he accomplished on the cross. We talk about Christmas time as the time for giving, for considering our fellow man, for spending time with family, and these things are good. But that is not the point of Christmas. Before and above anything else, Christmas is about the Christ child who was born in the manger of Bethlehem. Okay, but what makes that child so important, so special, so priceless? to us. It's because we're told when Christ was born, the year of the Lord's favor began. The time when the Lord would accomplish his great work of steadfast love for his people, which lasts forever. In his kindness and his mercy and his love, the Lord sent his son right then, at just precisely the correct time, to save his people, to do for them what they could not do for themselves. And he loved us enough to do for us according to what we needed, not according simply to what we would have asked him for. And his people knew that this time was coming. They said, the prophets promised, he is coming. The Lord will do a great work. And the people asked, how long? How long? When? And when Jesus was born, God said, 
now. Right now. How does Ruth 2 teach us this? When we left Ruth and Naomi last week, we saw that these two widowed women were in Bethlehem, which was good, and they had gotten there right at the beginning of the harvest season. That means food is about to start coming in from the fields. Also good. Food was available, and these are two desperate women, two widows, at a bad time to be a widow. They needed food. But how would they get it? They don't own any land. They haven't cultivated any crops, so they don't own anything that they can go out to the field and pick for themselves. So who are they going to get food from? They can't really go out and buy it. They're broke. This is a chapter of striking out in faith and trusting the Lord to provide for those who trusted in him. And the Lord shows that he returned that faith with an abundance. And so this passage teaches us a theme that's very appropriate for the Christmas season. The Lord shows his favor to us this Christmas by meeting our greatest needs with Jesus Christ. And three points will guide our study of God's favor, of God's abundance to it today. We will see first the search for God's favor, then second, the abundance of God's favor, and then third, the response to God's favor. The search for God's favor begins in verse 1 but not exactly in the place where you would expect it to. So at the end of chapter 1, we came to a summary. Okay, the women are back in Bethlehem. Naomi is home. Ruth the Moabite has come with her. And it's the beginning of the barley season, the very beginning of the harvest season in Israel at that time. So we'd expect that the action would just track with them immediately and just go into the next scene. But the narrator doesn't immediately go back to Ruth and Naomi. He introduces a new character to the narrative, verse 1. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So in Bethlehem, we are told, Naomi's deceased husband has a relative, a close relative named Boaz. And we're told he's a worthy man. Okay, so what does that mean, though? We're told he's a worthy man. Define worthiness. Tell us what that means, Mr. Narrator. And the narrator is like, just put a pin in that. Just make a note of that for right now. There's a guy who's related to Naomi through her husband. He's in town, and he's a good egg. Just set him to the side for just a moment. Let's go back to the ladies. So we follow the narrator in verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter, go. So we said that these women needed grain to eat, but they had no crops to harvest. So how are they going to get grain? Well, this is where the Lord's provision begins, I'd say. Years before Ruth and Naomi were born, the Lord gave them the law to the people of Israel, instructing them how they were to live, to practice justice, and to help people who were poor. One of the ways was in the gleaning laws that God established. You see, God knew that people were going to be poor, that times were going to happen when people just couldn't harvest their own crops for whatever reason. So we established these laws for gleaning. Let's say that one family in our church um, owned a very large field that they would harvest, we'll just say, um, heads of wheat from um, in season. Now, this family would be able to harvest the heads of wheat um, as they wanted, but here's the thing. If they were following God's old law at this time, and they would have had to living in Israel— 
they were not allowed to harvest everything in that field. If you had a field, you were allowed to harvest most of it. But anything that fell to the ground, anything that you dropped out of your hand, you had to leave. And if you were harvesting in the field in general, you had to sort of leave a wide perimeter. You were not allowed to um, harvest your own field right up to the very edges. God says anything on the very edges of your property and anything that falls to the ground, leave it. That is for the poor among you, for the sojourner who doesn't have anything. They will be allowed to come to your field to leave to pick up anything that you've left behind, that you've left on the edges of the field, that you've dropped, so that they can have something to eat. Now, Ruth knows about these laws somehow, and she says, I want to go out and do that. The men are harvesting right now. There's sure to be things left behind. I want to go out and glean from it. So, simple enough. It sounds good on paper, but there's a bit of a problem. We've said that this story happens in the time when the judges ruled. That, again, was not a good time. There were a lot of bad people in Israel who did a lot of bad things. Call a spade a spade. It was not a good time to be alive. Yeah, God might have commanded that, the, that gleanings be left behind in the fields, but that did not mean that everybody followed that rule. I mean, if you were really going to look at the Bible and take a dollar for every time God said, you have not obeyed me, you'd be, you'd be wealthy enough. It happens a lot. We can always count on a wicked person in Scripture to do something wicked to try to enrich himself at the expense of someone else. So Ruth can't just count on going out to any given field and just being allowed to glean as she pleases. And plus, we've said before, Ruth is a widow and a foreigner living in Israel. If anybody wanted to make trouble for her, just wanted to speak unkindly to her, up to just flat out assaulting her in the field, that was a very real possibility. That was a very real fear for her. And if someone decided to do that, she had no legal recourse. No one was going to protect her out in the fields. If somebody wanted to cause trouble for her, they could likely get away with it. If Ruth is going to go out and glean, she knows there's a big risk that she could get hurt and that she might not find anything to begin with. Now, even in the face of these risks... She trusted that the Lord would lead her to someone in whose eyes she'd find favor. She believed that the Lord would take her to somebody who would treat her kindly and allow her to glean safely. So, verse 3, she set out, and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And then she happened, happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. The narrator tells us Ruth went out trusting that she'd find someone friendly, and what happens? She just so happens to end up in the part of the field which belonged to Boaz. You know, that fellow that the narrator just made a point of telling us about a verse or two ago? She had no idea who Boaz was. She did not go out to the field thinking, I'm going to go to glean here because I know this guy is safe. She just so happened by accident to end up in the field of the one guy that the narrator has said he is a good man. And then see what happens in verse 4. The narrator says, almost bringing it directly into English, why look? Right as the time she gets to the field and starts gleaning, who should come down from Bethlehem but the man himself? 
And then he just so happens to look out at the field and see the reapers. And he sees a young girl that he doesn't know personally. And so he asks the foreman, who is that girl? Like, who is she? And the foreman tells her, oh, yeah, you know, um, when Miss Naomi came back from Moab not all that long ago, boss, and how everybody's been talking about that Moab, the Moabite girl who came back with her? Yeah, that's her. That's the Moabite everybody's been making such a fuss about recently. Huh, the narrator says. What a coincidence. What are the odds? And the scripture isn't just ascribing to random fate aligning that day or proper alignment of the stars or even just some kind of abstract destiny that's just working out. As Proverbs 6, verse 33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. You can toss a die onto the ground, but whatever face it ends up showing, that is decided by the Lord. Again, neither Ruth nor Boaz planned to meet that day. Ruth did not go out thinking, I want to end up in Boaz's field because I hear he's a decent fellow. She had no idea that the man existed before that morning. It looks like this is just a huge, if really nice, coincidence. But each of their steps, the narrator tells us, was planned by the Lord. And he guided them so that they would meet that day in the field. And for centuries, those who trust in the Lord, like Ruth, and as we'll see, like Boaz, looked for relief from their sins and the misery that it brings to the world. And apparently they looked without relief for centuries. Time and again they cried out to the Lord, believing that he would do something great, do something to redeem them forever. And the Lord promised them time and again he would reward that faith. He would return it with reality. He sent his prophets with promises. He spoke in dreams and visions to his people. He left hints and clues as to what he would do. Clues like Micah 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Yet from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Our ancient mothers and fathers who believed in the Lord wanted to know what he would do. No, they didn't know as much as you and I do now with the clarity of the, of the New Testament and the completion of the Old Testament. They didn't have enough puzzle pieces in their day to be able to say, oh, of course, we need to expect Jesus to come from Bethlehem at thus and so a time to be born of a virgin. And he's going to go and do all of these things leading up to his death on the cross. They couldn't have said that before Jesus came. They didn't have enough of the puzzle pieces to do that. But they did know enough. They knew enough to know that the Lord was working for them, that he would return their faith, and that his work on their behalf would bear fruit exactly according to the plans of the Lord and exactly on his timetable. Even as they prayed for him to act and they looked for the coming Savior, they blessed the Lord and they struck out went out with faith that he would lead them and that he would help them. And now 2,000 years later, after Jesus' birth, we can come back and look back and see how the Lord fulfilled his promises to his people, his promise of salvation to Israel and to all the world. We can see it in great clarity. 
We've seen that he comes through for those who search for his favor and ask for his help. In the greatest possible way, he has met our need for salvation. He's met our need for forgiveness and favor with his son, Jesus Christ. Even though we had no good deeds to present him and no holiness to make us worthy of his notice. But he is the Lord and his love endures forever. And he hears those who are poor in spirit when they call out for help and when they trust him to respond with love and mercy. And the Lord doesn't just say to those people, well, here's the mercy that you asked for from me. Now take it and be gone. Leave me alone now. He doesn't do the barest of minimum for them as if they're just an inconvenience. He goes far above what we think that we need. And we'll see this, a picture of this, in Boaz's kindness to Ruth in our second point, the abundance of God's favor. So at this point in the story, Boaz has been told that the um, unknown, hardworking young lady in his field is the Moabite widow who recently returned with Naomi. She wanted to be able to glean in peace in his land and apparently had already started working hard. Now, if Boaz were simply a law-abiding good Jewish boy, the bare minimum he had to do for Ruth was just say, oh, you're a widow, a sojourner who wants to glean on my property? Yeah, go for it. You're good. You can do that as much as you want. That's the bare minimum of what he would have to do. But see what he says in verses 8 and 9. He speaks tenderly to Ruth. Now, listen, my daughter. A term of great affection, even though he doesn't know this girl. He tells her, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. This is not simply, yes, you may be on my property. This is, you don't need to look anywhere else for a place to glean. As long as there is harvesting to be done in my field, you have my permission and my encouragement to stay here. And as long as you do, you can stick close with the young women who work for me, and you, as a widowed lady, will have safety in numbers among the other women. You'll be able to follow right behind my reapers as they are working in the field, and anything they leave behind on the ground, you have first pick of, uncontested. You will get as much grain as you can carry. And I've even commanded my reapers, they are to leave you alone. None of them will bother you, or they will answer directly to me. And in fact, if you get thirsty, you're not going to have to go through the trouble of going to the well and drawing water for yourself. My men have already drawn water for all my workers. If you get thirsty, have as much as you want. Ruth has been offered stability, safety, companionship, friendship, and far more food than she should ever normally be able to glean. This is not Boaz following the letter of the law. This would be like a beggar asking a man for $5 and receiving 1000 instead. Ruth might have hoped for good treatment, for favorable treatment when she went out that day, but she could not have counted on anything like this in a million years. And she knows it. So in the face of Boaz's generosity and kindness to her in verse 10, she falls on her faith in a show of deference to him and asks, Why? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth has no connection to Boaz, 
They literally would not have known each other if they'd fallen over each other that morning. Boaz doesn't owe Ruth anything. He doesn't owe this kind of treatment to one of his own countrymen, to one of his own family members, much less a nobody foreigner from a people that Israel's relationship with in the past has been tepid at the best of times. Moabites and Israelites did not get along for very good reason, and usually Moab was in the wrong with it. So Ruth knows that I am a foreigner, and we don't, and people don't really deal well with foreigners, and I'm of a people that your people really doesn't like. Why are you being kind to me? Why are you doing not just kindness, but going far above what even the most kind thing that you could do for a countryman? Why are you doing this for me? Boaz answers in verse 11. He didn't know Ruth to see her before then, but he knew who she was by reputation, and he knew what she had done. Boaz had been fully told, received a full report of how Ruth had not stayed in Moab when it would have been convenient for her to do so. How after the death of her husband and her father-in-law and her brother-in-law, she had gone with Naomi back to Israel. How she had stayed with her cranky old mother-in-law and gone out to care for her. Boaz knows that she has left behind her parents, her mother and father, her homeland, her people, her culture, her language, her life in Moab, left all of that behind and come to Israel, accompanying her elderly mother-in-law to go to an unfamiliar land and its people. And he understood that Ruth was not simply doing this out of love or loyalty to Naomi. Yes, that was true. Ruth loved Naomi dearly, but there was something far greater at work there. Ruth didn't just love Naomi. She loved Naomi's God. Ruth had entrusted her entire life, her entire well-being to the God of Israel. And she had struck out in faith to serve him, to follow after him. She had entrusted her life to him the way a baby chick entrusts its life to its mother hen, tucking itself under the wings to rest. The way that a little baby curls up on her mother's chest and sleeps because she knows that she is safe with her mother. Boaz knows that Ruth has done this with his God. So he says in verse 12, The Lord repay you for what you have done, for everything you have given up, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth had stepped out in faith when she came to Israel, and Boaz believed that the Lord would return Ruth's faith with favor, with a great gift. And he, Boaz, wanted to show that. Boaz was a man who loved the Lord and who loved the people of the Lord. And as such, he wanted to show Ruth, the Moabite foreigner who's come to trust his God, that the Lord is good. He wanted to show Ruth that the Lord is indeed kind by being an agent of that kindness. He would provide for Ruth as much as he possibly could, give her as much food as she wanted, give her protection in his fields, on his land, and he would protect her because he understood that is what the Lord would do for her. And he wanted to be somebody who acted like his God. So in the face of this undeserved and overwhelming kindness, 
Verse 13, Ruth proclaimed, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me. And you have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. This is the sort of person that Ruth was hoping to find when she went out. She was hoping to find someone who would treat her with kindness, with favor, with mercy. But Boaz went far beyond even the best she could have hoped for. Here is not simply a good man who says, oh yes, you may glean on my property, take as much of my leavings as you want. This is a good man who does far beyond what she could ever expect. A man who does noble things in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and does them not simply for his countrymen, for the people who are like him, but for people like Ruth. Nobodies. People who have no one to depend upon but the Lord. People to whom Boaz owed nothing. In the kindness of Boaz, Ruth saw the favor of the Lord. And she was overwhelmed by gratitude. And then Boaz did her even one better. More than one better. In verse 14, when it was lunchtime, Boaz called Ruth to take a break. And invited her to share in the meal that he provided for his servants. And she didn't just get like a small bag of chips and a Gatorade, just a little light snack to get her through the day. Boaz gave her so much food that she was able to eat until she was full, and then she had leftovers. In a day when you just ate what was available, and you hoped that your belly was full at the end of it, this woman, who should not have any food at all, was able to eat until she couldn't eat anymore, and she still had food to take home. And then when she returned to gleaning, Boaz told his men, pull out extra grain for her. You've already gathered some of the wheat into the sheaves and bundles. Pull some of that out. Leave it behind. Let her glean from that. And again, you are to leave her alone. Do not bother her. She is my honored guest. And my men, Boaz says, will treat this woman kindly. If we were to hear a story of that today, a man doing that for a helpless woman in America today, what would our reaction be? We would laugh at best. We'd say that's ridiculous, that no one is that generous. And we'd say, what's his angle? How's he trying to manipulate this poor woman? We wouldn't be able to trust generosity like that. We don't know what to do with it. When we read a story like Boaz, we'd say, what's the catch? What's his angle? How's he trying to manipulate this woman into doing something cruel? What does he get out of the deal? We don't know how to deal with this kind of generosity when it comes to us from our fellow man. And then faced with the same kind of generosity, the same kind of offer from Jesus Christ, we really don't know what to do with that. At best, it sounds far too good to be true. That nobody could be that generous. That nobody could love that selflessly. We'd ask if we heard about Jesus Christ. If Jesus' work was only being now completed, we'd laugh and say, what does he want out of us? How is this religious fool trying to manipulate us like all of the other charlatans? We don't know how to accept the generosity of God in Jesus Christ. Not without him to show us. We don't know how to receive his compassion for the helpless. We don't know how to receive the kindness of the Lord who gives without thought of repayment. No, our people, 
not just Americans, but our race in general, says the Lord offers us too much. He offers us more than what we want, and not really what we want at all. More than what I need, and not what I want besides. Humanity doesn't know how to look at the abundance of the Lord's favor and see his love as a good thing. We see it as a joke. We see it as a trick, maybe. Or we see it as a trap. It's not something to ask for. It's not something to desire. We laugh and we mistrust. We doubt. That's all that he makes it out to be. Because that's what we know. That's what we expect in a world of sin. We expect to be lied to because everyone around us is a liar when it comes down to it. But in Christ Jesus, that is not so. In him, we have been given an abundance, far more spiritual good than we could ever ask for. And this is a real, genuine promise, a real offer that comes to us from the throne of God. Steadfast love that endures forever, forgiveness for every evil thing that we have ever done, and the warm, loving fellowship between us and the Lord. By sending his son to be born of a virgin, in Bethlehem. God has shown us that he wants to give these things to his people, that they are real, because his son took on our flesh and our bone, and he lived among us, and he died for us. As the hymn goes, love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. In a man like Boaz, we see a small-scale picture of this, of the abundance of Jesus' grace and love for us. Boaz gave Ruth food, which was good. She needed that desperately. But in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life, given eternal life. So do we hold on to him? Do we hold on to that promise of eternal life from the bread of life? from the water of life that never runs out, that never leaves us hungry or thirsty again. Do we hold on to the forgiveness and the divine love that comes with salvation hand in hand? And then do we reflect that generosity to other people? Could people who come across us today or tomorrow see that kind of generosity in us, the generosity of a man like Boaz? No, perhaps we don't have fields um, to glean from, but how do we treat other people? Are we a people who are generous? Are we a people who love? Who love our brothers and sisters who show the kindness of Jesus Christ to other believers? Or do we tell other people, go home, be well-fed and well-stocked and warm, without lifting a finger for them? Do we love others as abundantly as we have been loved by the Lord? As Paul prayed in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12, speaking to another young church, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Do we hear that prayer and do we ask for the Lord to make it true for us today? So having seen the generosity of Boaz, this generosity that reflects the divine love of the Lord, could it somehow be even greater? Boaz has done much for Ruth in this one day. 
And through her, he has done great things for Naomi, as we'll see in a moment. And yet, might he be willing to do more? That is what Naomi will ask in our last point, the response to God's favor. At the end of the workday, Ruth takes all of the grain that Boaz has allowed her to glean, and she has begun to separate it, taking um, the edible kernels of barley and separating that from the useless, inedible stalks and and sheaves of it. Um, According to verse 17, when all was said and done, Ruth had about an ephah of edible grain, to which we say, hum, what's an ephah? And the people are a little bit um, not sure about what an ephah was, but at least 30 pounds, perhaps as much as 50 pounds worth of grain, or enough to fill one of those gigantic bags of dog food that you bring home for your dog. She, got, she went out hoping to get maybe a little bit of grain. She came home with a gigantic dog bag worth of food carried on her back after a full day of working in the field. And then she still had her leftovers from lunch on top of that. This is ridiculous amount of food that she's bringing home. And she came home and she set it on the ground and showed Naomi what, what I brought. And Naomi even got to eat her leftovers from lunch. Now, up to this point, we've seen that Naomi was bitter. She was angry. She said, don't call me the name that means pleasant anymore. I want to be called bitter. I want to be called Mara, the bitter old woman, because that's what I am now. And she'd still been like that when, she, when Ruth had gone out that day. She still felt as though she had come home to Bethlehem, having nothing to show for her time away. And then Ruth comes home, drops a gigantic bag of food on the table, and the old woman is speechless. Where did you get that? Where did you work? Who did you work from? The Lord blessed that man. The man who led you glean today. Where did you go? So Ruth explains her adventures, and she said in verse 19, the man who I gleaned with, his name is Boaz. And Naomi bursts into thanksgiving for the Lord, for his kindness. She says in verse 20, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. As we said, Naomi recognizes where Boaz's kindness has come from. She recognizes that he resembles his God. And his kindness, his generosity to Ruth and through Ruth to Naomi the old woman is starting to come out of her shell of bitterness because she sees the hand of God in this. This is not simply the work of one nice guy. This is the power of the Lord himself working through those who love him and serve him. And the Lord himself, Naomi realizes, has not abandoned her. He remembers her husband and her sons, and because they can no longer care for her, the Lord has sent Boaz to do this kind thing for her and for her daughter-in-law. The Lord hasn't forgotten to take care of the living. She's starting to believe the words of Psalm 100, verse 5, that the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. And yet at the same time, Naomi says something interesting in verse 20. She understands that that Boaz has taken a special interest in Ruth. And then in verse 20, she says, the man is a close relative of ours, a redeemer. We'll talk more about redeemers next week. 
But in short, for this point, it's important that we understand that redeemers were members of Israelite families. For our purposes, if a redeemer was somebody with special duties. If a poor man went bankrupt and had to sell off his property, a redeemer could step in for his um, uncle or for his cousin or his brother or whoever, his relative, and he could buy that property um, from his brother who was going bankrupt. That way the family wouldn't go out of, wouldn't go, um, out of their land, land wouldn't go out of the people, and that man would have something to live on and wouldn't be completely destitute. And Boaz is a redeemer for Ruth and Naomi through Naomi's husband. Boaz has already shown a great deal of kindness to Ruth in giving her upwards of 30 pounds of food in one day. And yet he is a redeemer. If he's done this much for us already, might he be willing to do more to solve our problems, not just for, for, for food, but to give Ruth a chance at a life? Plus, you know, redemption also sometimes includes marrying a widow if she has no one else to take care of her. And Boaz, you know, he's a single gentleman, and Ruth is still an eligible and attractive young lady. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. You know, just throwing it out there. It could happen, Naomi says. Could Boaz do more for Ruth than simply give her food? At this point in the narrative, the narrator's not saying. He's just saying, let's put a pin in that. He's a redeemer, and he's single, and Ruth is a widow. But we'll get back to that another time. For now, Ruth has been offered much. She's been offered a place of continual work, a continual place to glean in Boaz's field for as long as the harvest season lasts, about three months or so. And Naomi wants her to keep doing that. The man has already done much for you. He's already shown his willingness to give much to you, to protect you, and he has offered you a place with his servant women in the field. Keep doing that. He will keep you safe. For now, we'll just see what happens from there. But keep doing what the Lord has shown you that he's willing to do through this man. What was Ruth and Naomi's response to Boaz's generosity? Praise and thankfulness. To Boaz, yes, because he had sacrificed much for Ruth, but also, and more importantly, thankfulness to the Lord himself, because Boaz was simply a servant. He's a wealthy man, he's a worthy man, yes, but he is simply a servant of the Lord God. His kindness, Boaz's kindness, was an act of the Lord, him being transformed to resemble God. His divine providence was meeting the needs of these two widows when they needed it, and no one else could meet it. They didn't dismiss the Lord and say, oh yeah, it's just the kindness of man working through the generosity of human spirit. No, absolutely not. And they didn't scoff at the Lord and say, is this it? Are we just getting grain from this man? You don't think that we could have gotten a little bit more for our diet than just barley grain? No, they said, blessed be the Lord for his favor to us, and blessed be the one who brings his love to the poor and to the destitute in his name. Blessed be the Lord. And yet Naomi knew, as marvelous as this gift of grain was, as far as this was going to go, it was not the final answer to their needs. 30 pounds of grain in one day, that is awesome. 
if you have no other source of income. No question. But they were still broke. The harvest season's not going to last forever. They needed to be redeemed. Ruth needed to be remarried. Something more than grain was needed if these women were going to have a life. Boaz, in theory, could provide that for them through marriage. Would the Lord do that? Would he redeem Ruth and Naomi? We will see. But that's how we need to come to the Lord, too, when we pray to him. When we pray the Lord's Prayer here every day, every Sunday, we say, give us this day our daily bread. We need bread. We need food. We need income. We need the dailies of life to help us continue on, to help us endure. And we do ask the Lord to give those things to us. Yes, but you also need more than food. Right? What's the thing that we pray after we say, give us this day our daily bread? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us as we forgive others. What do we pray before that? We pray, hallowed be the name of the Lord. We praise you. And may your will be done on earth as it your will is accomplished in heaven. These things are more important in many ways than the daily bread that we need in life. Food is good. And we are so grateful to the Lord for how he provides it to us, when he provides it to us. But a person who has the abundance of food, who has the best chefs in his employ and the finest of ingredients to choose from, if he does not have the Lord, if he doesn't have the redemption that comes from the Lord, is a dead man. Dead man walking. Our souls need spiritual nourishment. Our minds need redemption. And the only man who can give that to us He is Jesus Christ. The only man who can pull us out of our spiritual poverty is the Lord Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem. His birth in Bethlehem was the beginning of the Lord, showing that greater favor for us. Beginning of a work that would be completed in Calvary many years later. So how shall we respond to the Lord's kindness this Christmas? Do we simply say in our hearts, yes, yes, Jesus' birth, um, praise be to the Lord, gloria in excelsis Deo, and then do we move on because we're so inundated with it, because it's just so normal? Or do we wonder at the Lord's favor, that he would shelter us under his wings, that we would marvel at the depth and width and height of his love for sinners like us who do not deserve it, who have no claims on him, And then when we recognize the love of the Lord, do we show that same love and that same mercy to others so that they too will know the steadfast love of the Lord, that it endures in abundance forever? Do we pray for the Lord to accomplish the fullness of his infinite holiness and his infinite goodness on earth in our lives, in the lives of others, as he is accomplishing it in heaven? May that be a prayer that is on our hearts continually as we prepare for Christmas. Amen. Shall we pray? Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks for everything that you've done us done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the favor that you've shown to us by revealing Christ to us, by awakening our hearts um, to see our sin and to reject it, to hold on to Jesus Christ and to cry out for mercy, for help, And we give you praise and thanks that you have answered our prayer with kindness. When we cried out for help, Lord, you said, I am willing to help you. Be healed of your sin. 
be redeemed of your poverty. We pray, Father, that the day will come when Jesus Christ's work will be completed in full, that he will come back to earth soon, redeem us out of sin for good, and crush the power of Satan. Help us to look forward to that day, Lord. And in the meantime, help us to continue to call upon your steadfast love, not just for our sakes, but for the sakes, of Father, of people who don't know you. Reach out to them. Reach out to us through them. Reach out to them through us. In all things, Father, may your favor be known. And let the power of Jesus Christ shine forward this Christmas through your people. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.